All right, everybody, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 8 this morning. We are continuing in our series called Rhythms, and we're towards the end. Actually, we're at the end. So Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, we're going to read these verses out loud together. If you're here with no Bible, then down the center column of seats, there are some, some Bibles that you can grab and use as we're reading through the Scriptures all right, Romans 12, 1 through 8. Let's read these together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to gather as your church, uh, to see um, your church come together on the Lord's Day as you have instructed us to do and to not neglect doing that as we see the, the days approaching. God, we, uh, we pray that your word would be life and light to us. God, we don't look to any other source, God, for, uh, for energy or for sustainment. It's not the coffee that, that keeps us awake, God. Your word is life to us. I pray that we would sense that life today. God, we, sense, we pray that we would sense your presence, that as we, um, as we open the scriptures and uh, even as, uh, Lord, you use my voice to, to talk about this subject of service, God, that you would um, incline our hearts to you, that draw us uh, to you, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would hear your gospel today that it would transform us to be more like you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so I want to do two things as, as we start today. The first is to do a little bit of preview and also to, to, re, to, to review. Here's the preview. Um, this is the last sermon in our Rhythms series, and we're going to turn the corner and do something else next week. And that something else that we're doing next week is actually going backward to where we stopped last fall. Uh, in the fall, we started a series in uh, the New Testament letter of James. James, the little brother of Jesus, we were reading through his epistle, and we stopped around the December time frame to, uh, to observe Advent. And then we uh, just wanted to start this year looking at spiritual disciplines. And so we put that on halt, halt, halt on hold. Is that the way you say that? All right, so we're going to start that up again. So here's what you can do for your devotions this week. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a plan already, go find the New Testament letter of James and read through that to refresh yourself 
on, on what James has talked to us about. We're going to begin in chapter 4. Okay, so we'll spend four, perhaps five weeks in, in James, and then after that, we're going to start an Easter series. It's going to be four weeks long as we're working our way uh, to the observance of Easter, and our Easter series is going to be entitled Raised, Raised as in uh, Raised from the Grave, and we're going to be looking at this idea of um, finding Jesus by doubting the resurrection. Have you ever doubted uh, some of the things that you read in the, in the Bible, particularly some of the things that we know and read about and that perhaps Christians for a long time have celebrated in regards to Jesus and particularly the, the resurrection? We are going to um, dive into that. And the encouragement will be, it's actually okay to doubt. That's, that's where we're going with our Easter series and I would encourage you, if you have people in your life, people that you know, uh, people at work that are, you know, on the outskirts of Christianity, that, um, that are seeking but maybe not too hard, and, and what's got them hung up is just all the questions that they have that can't be answered. This will be a little, you know, slightly heady, but more, you know, both head and heart in, in terms of um, saying it's okay to doubt, but also giving people permission to ask questions of the Bible and we're going to try and answer those in this series. Today we're uh, at the end of our series in Rhythms, and we've been working off of this premise that uh, we all have good intentions when, when it comes to our spirituality. Um, God puts it in us. He gives us the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is drawing us to Jesus. But sometimes we can get hung up. Sometimes we can get busy. Sometimes we can get bored, and when we get busy and bored, Oftentimes, our spiritual life goes to the wayside, and it, it suffers. Um, we started the, the, the series talking about the idea of pathways, that all of us are inclined. There's some things in life that, I mean, just we just love to do. God puts it in us that some things appeal to us. Some of you are just outdoorsmen. You like to go for walks. You like to sit by the lake. Uh, you like to go for, for hikes. When you do those kinds of things, it makes you feel alive. Some of you actually uh, feel alive when you're by yourself, a little bit of solitude and, and silence. Some of you, on the other hand, um, only feel alive when you're around other people. You got to be in a true, I mean, just a good relationship to feel like, like you, you are in it and that life is, is okay. Some of you are doers. You like to get your hands dirty. You like, to, you like to serve. Some of you are intellectuals. And so when you're reading, when you're studying, um, that's, I mean, that, that just like turns you, it, it makes you go. And then there are others of you that, that like, uh, you're, you're activists, you like causes, you like to pull people into to going and doing things, making the world a better place. Um, all of us are different. Perhaps one of those or something else that I haven't even mentioned is something that you're inclined to. But the idea is, firstly, if you like something, perhaps God made you that way, but it also maybe you were exposed to it as you were brought up. And that's the reason why that kind of thing just makes life come, you know, come alive for you. The reason why I start with the idea of, of pathways is because we can apply that spiritually as well. There are some things spiritually that I'm drawn to more than others. And when I do them, it makes me feel like I'm more connected to God. And I could list a whole bunch of things. In fact, during this series, we've talked about several of them. There's some things spiritually, things that we're supposed to do as Christians, that I have a, kind of a natural affinity toward. 
So for example, um, I've always liked to read. Um, I mean, pretty much anything. Not a lot of magazines, but I mean, I'm always reading the news. I'm always reading books, different kind of books. And I've, I just have a, a, a love for reading. And that naturally segues into a, a, a love for reading the Bible. Um, I don't have to be uh, coerced. Uh, you don't even have to tell me to get up and read my Bible. It's something that I naturally want to do. I would, I would actually say I sense God's pleasure when I'm reading the Bible. I feel like I'm connected to God when I'm reading the Bible. How do I hear God? I hear God when I'm opening my Bible and I'm reading what he's already said to me. Now, if, if we talk about prayer, not so much. It's not that I don't pray. It's not that I don't know I'm supposed to pray. It's just that I like reading my Bible more than I like praying to God. Call me weird. But some of you are like that too. I love to worship. I love to be in a crowd. Like, I mean, worship this morning for, for me was, was wonderful. Okay? Not just the songs, but just in the atmosphere of being with the gathered people of God and the opportunity to lift our voices to a God who's worthy of our praise. We sang that song. Two years ago, I tried to do a week of solitude and silence. I went off to myself to this, this one room. I had, I mean, it was just me, my Bible, and my wife was the only one that could contact me. And it almost killed me. I mean, I'm not, you know, I can't say this like I want to say it. Uh, I just don't like to do that stuff, right? So some of these things we're more inclined to than others. For you, it might be just you like to go to the outdoors and go to the lake and feed ducks. Now, let me give one caveat. All right, so there's nothing spiritual about feeding ducks, right? But how about this? But if you have a natural affinity for the outdoors, why not add it to another spiritual activity. Bring your Bible, bring your journal with it. So as you're sitting out by the lake, enjoying God and his creation, you can also read the Psalms and see, you know, and, and get in tune with what the psalmist has said about the God who made the lake and who made the duck, killing two birds with one stone. Connect the things that you naturally like to do, but don't neglect the more spiritual avenues the Bible commands as ways that we should and ought to connect with God. And that really is the heart of this, this series, at least the way that I've been trying to portray it for you. The rhythm or the, the heart of a spiritual discipline is that we're trying to sit at Jesus' feet. I mean, what can I do that would make me connect and stay connected to God more, more readily? In fact, that's really how we define a spiritual discipline. It's nothing more than a tool that helps us get connected and stay connected to God. And so the heart is you use both your natural and your spiritual affinities to help you hear from God. You're trying not just to you know, spend time because you need to spend time in the Bible or praying or doing any of those religious things. You're trying to actually sense God's presence and spend time with him because that's, that's how God changes us. And so here's, the, here's what we did. We went through several of the spiritual disciplines. And we, we took the big ones, the big category spiritual disciplines. We started with reading the Bible, Bible intake, in, in, uh, so to speak. Why do we start there? Well, because that's how God reveals himself. That's, I mean, what we know about God is revealed in his word. And so the way that we are changed by this spiritual discipline is by reading and um, meditating and memorizing and putting the word in us. God is speaking to us, and he speaks primarily through his word. 
We also said if God is speaking, we should be listening. And that was our segue in into prayer. Prayer is nothing more than you communicating with God. God is speaking to us. We're quieting our hearts and our souls so that we can hear him both through his word and creation and through other people, but also through our circumstances. But because it's a communication, uh, two-way communication, we're not just listening, we're also talking to God. And we looked at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' model for how we should come to God in prayer. And Jesus tells us that uh, he starts with our Father. We have a God who calls himself, uh, allows us to call him our Father. And so we can come boldly to God and ask him for anything, almost like your kids do to you. For those of you who are who are parents in the room, I mean, they don't they don't think a couple they don't think twice about what they're going to ask you. They just ask for whatever they want, right? God God allows us because we're His kids to come and bring those things, those needs that we have to Him. And and because He's a Father, He knows what we want, but He also knows what we need. Now Jesus tells us we we come to God. Boldly because he's our father, but we also come to him with, with humility because he's in heaven. And if he's in heaven, he's to be revered. We, tr- we are to revere God. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but really the Bible and prayer really are meant to be together. Uh, almost like um, all of us here in, in this room. A lot of times we try to do these things by ourselves, but the Bible is meant to be read and understood in, in community. When we pray, of course, Jesus says that we're supposed to go sometimes and be in secret in our prayer, our prayer closet and pray. But generally, in the Bible, we see people praying in community. And that was when we went and talked a little bit about what it means to be in community. Acts 2, uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47 really is, is the model. The scripture says the disciples were all together and had everything in common. That means that they were, they were unified. That really is the picture of community. Community is a spiritual discipline that those of us in this room as Christians uh, in the church should be um, experiencing and exercising regularly. Community is... Um, it's important for us not just because we need to be together in fellowship. Community is important for us because that's how God presents himself to us. The God that we serve is one God, three persons. He's eternally forever in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we look at you know, how God created all that was created, he didn't create human beings because he was lonely. God's a trinity. He lives in community, in perpetuity. He didn't, Genesis 2.18 says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. God did not um, create Eve because Adam was lonely. No, he created Eve because Adam was meant to mirror, to be that same image of God. God's a relational, multidimensional, personal God. He wanted Adam to exist in this same kind of relationship. Our model for community is God himself. And that brings us to our text today. In Romans 12, of course, Romans is the most theological, um, doctrinal book in all the Bible. And so we're starting uh, three quarters of the way through that book after Paul's already talked about uh, what the gospel is, the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. There's no one excluded from God's grace because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And he tells us we become Christians um, as we trust in Jesus. He, take, he forgives us of our sin, 
takes our sin and imputes, gives us his righteousness. And then he goes and talks about uh, several other theological, theologically heavy topics. And then as he approaches um, chapter 12, he gets into the, 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 um, a more communicative, communicative part of our existence as the people of God. Particularly, he's talking about our relationships, our relationship to God himself, but also our relationship to each other. And in, in chapter 12, he's speaking to the church, and he's, he's really casting vision, casting vision uh, in the likes of he wants to encourage them and us to see something greater in and for our lives. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living, uh, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so the, the, that greater thing, the, the something that's greater in our lives that Paul is encouraging the church at Rome to buy into is this idea of a life of worship. He says, this is what you should be working towards, both in your work, in your relationship towards me, but also in your relationship to each other is a life oriented towards worship. And really, that's what all the spiritual disciplines are, are bringing you to, that you would live a life of, of worship every day in and out. Paul says, I appeal to you. That's his encouragement to us. He's encouraging us. He says, I come alongside you based upon all that you know about Jesus and what he's done for you. I'm trying to get it so that you see that here's, here's the prerequisite that you should live for your life. It's, it's worship. And here's the one thing that you got to do to be able to worship. You have to be mercied. You have to be mercied. I know that's not a word. Actually, when I typed it, I, I, I like that word because it sounds good. All right, so for all you academics in here, Leave me alone. But doesn't it sound good? You, you've been mercied. Paul says, I'm appealing to you because you've been mercied. You are a great recipient, uh, of not just of God's grace. He's, he's giving you what you don't deserve. He's favoring you. But he's also decided to not give you what you do deserve, your, his wrath. You've been mercied. Because you've been mercied, this is how you should live your life. He's appealing to that. And so when you've been mercied, you stop trying to save yourself with, with your good life, with your good works, with your good heart, because none of that is, is good enough for God. That's what mercy is. When you've been mercied, you, you come to realize that all you can offer God is nothing. You have nothing in and of yourself that's of any worth to God. And that's why he says, all right, so just give him your life, because that's all you have to give. And so you receive mercy because of what God has done for you in Christ. And because you've been mercy, that makes you a Christian, but it also qualifies you to be a worshiper. You know, you can't even be a true worshiper if you haven't received God's mercy. And that's a big deal. So Paul says, I appeal to you, and then he says, brothers. And so he's telling us how, the, the context, how we're supposed to worship. True worship happens not by yourself, off doing your own thing, which is what we want to do sometimes. We want to be a private worshiper doing our own thing. But he says, true worship happens in the context of the church. 
We worship in community. To, to, to be off on yourself, even worshiping God, is a foreign, it's a foreign idea in all of the New Testament. Paul says, you got to be a Christian. You also have to be in community if you're going to be a true worshiper. And then he describes worship for us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here's what he says. Present your body as a living sacrifice. And so in worship, this is what we do. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. For you kids in the room, it's like the hokey pokey, right? You put your whole, you put your, not just your whole, your leg, your arm, or your head, you're putting your, your whole self in. It's like jumping in. That's what true worship is. Jumping in, going all the way under. The Old Testament picture is, is of a worship, of, of, a, of a person, an Israelite who is told that this is the way you worship God. You bring an unblemished animal, a goat, a bull, a lamb, and you present that to the priest. And that animal is going to be sacrificed, all of it. And its, its body is going to be cut up. And part of it is going to be burned. And that, and that, that flame with, that, with the, the entrails and all that stuff is going to, be, it's going to go up to God as a, as a pleasing aroma to him. Israel must have smelled like, like barbecue every day. Can you think about that? I mean, just it, it must have. And parts of it were, were actually cooked, and that was the provision for the priests and their families. And then you had the blood, the blood which atoned for their sin. But the thing was, all of that sacrifice, all of that animal was used. And here, here's what Paul is saying. We don't need any more animals. Jesus, Jesus' blood has given you access to God. And so because you've been mercy, this is what I need you to do. I need you to put your whole self in. Because worship is you giving all of yourself to God. That's what worship is. And so you'd ask the question, all right, so, I mean, I understand that, but um, I mean, how do I do that? We've been talking about that for six weeks. You all know how to worship. Actually, we talked about it three weeks ago. We talked specifically about worship. But in this sense, Paul has already told us how to do it. You read your Bible, you pray, you worship, you commu- uh, you're in community. There, there are, I mean, there, there are hundreds of other spiritual disciplines that we could have actually talked about. Um, that people say that you should do regularly as a Christian to help you get connected and stay connected to God. These would be the practices of worship. And what I would offer to you is these are the disciplines that we should be doing as the people of God all the time. We should make it our ambition to lead a life of worship, and we should let the disciplines help us, help guide us in that. Let me give you, let me describe this with the concept. All right, so anybody here impatient? Raise your hand if you are. All right, so a lot of us. Um, check it out. I didn't even know I had patience issues until I had kids. If you ask my, if you ask my wife, I mean, I, I was, you know, it's just part of my personality. I'm sort of like even keel. I don't get too excited about anything, uh, but I don't get depressed about most things. Um, you know, just even keel. I didn't even raise my voice until, until, you know, we had kids. That's what, that's what kids will do to you. Not that we don't love them. It's just, but what, what's happening is, um, the sin that's lying dormant in us, as you know, as we rub against each other, it comes out. And that really is, I mean, that's the gospel. That's what's supposed to happen uh, as we're reading the Bible and doing the one another's of Scripture. It just so happened I need to have kids for it to come out of me. 
So um, if you've ever been uh, impatient, then you, I mean, here's how you can put these spiritual disciplines to work in your life. Uh, but the point is, is, is the idea of worship. Worship is not just an activity. It's not just what we do. It's supposed to be who we are. One of the ways that we uh, have described spiritual disciplines in this series is, is this. We use John Ortberg's uh, definition from his book. It's any activity that I do by direct effort that will help me do what I can't right now do by direct effort. So I'm going to distance myself. I'm going to train myself to do a few things so that ultimately that the very thing that I want to do, I want to be patient, but I, I, I keep trying to do it. I keep trying to do it. I keep trying to do it, and it gets me nowhere. Why? Well, because obviously if you try to do it, you, you, the problem is you're trying. And a, uh, uh, I mean, patience, it's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. You need God's help. Sure, you can, you can like, um, you can will yourself to be patient. You can, um, like, put a piece of paper on your forehead and say, I'm patient, I'm patient, I'm patient, I'm patient. I mean, people will see through that, and your ugliness will show through. We need God to change us from the, the inside out. What would it look like to use the disciplines to lead a life of worship in this area of impatience for most of us? Here's what I think it would look like. First, I think it would look like you opening your Bible and you finding uh, perhaps a few narratives of people who were not necessarily impatient, but people who had to wait. Think of, of all the people in the Bible that had to wait for something, because that's one of the, that's one of the, root, you know, the roots that you, that you need if you're going to be patient. You need to, to, uh, to have the wherewithal to just not need it to be instant, but to be able to, to wait. What if you picked out a few uh, scripture verses, primarily the Proverbs, that talked about you being patient and not having to have things your own way? You might need to, to add some things in, about control in there, because if you're impatient, that means you want things how you want it when you want it. You're trying to control the situation so that you feel good, right? So you're going to break your Bible out. You're going to memorize a few verses. How about you start your morning praying for your day? And just think through the activities of the day. Think through those people that you're going to interact with that, like, stir it up. It's just like, oh, my God, I got that meeting at 1 o'clock with that dude, and I don't like him at all. For you stay-at-home moms and dads, those kids, right? And so I'm going to, I'm going to engage in the morning about some of the activities I'm going to do in my day that, that have to do with my kids. And I know those moments that, that I'm tempted to get a little bit impatient because things aren't quite going as quickly or exactly the way I want them to go. And so I, I pray. So, so Lord, show me my heart. Teach me how to do this. Um, produce the fruit of the Spirit in me because I can't do it myself. And then you go through your day. And right, bef you know, right before that meeting, you, you say a quick prayer. All right, Lord, so I, I'm, I don't like this person to start with, and I'm going to it's going to roll up in me that I'm going to get patient at what this person is going to say, so help me not to react in that way. Here's the last thing I think you should, not the last thing, but just one other thing. How about if you decide in your heart that you're going to serve that person, that person that you, I mean, that, that you really get impatient with, 
that I'm going to serve them in some capacity. Because this is, what, this is what happens when you serve someone. When you serve someone, you're not going to try to manipulate them. And if you're not trying to manipulate them or control them or make them do the very thing that you want to do so you feel good, then what's going to happen is you're going to be less impatient with them. Guess what you've done when you've done all those things? Firstly, you've exercised a few, a few spiritual disciplines. But more importantly, you're not trying, you're training yourself. You're not going to do that perfectly. You're going to get it wrong. You, you might have a, 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 a moment where you are really impatient, but that means God is working on you, especially if you recognize it when it happens. But you're training yourself to be patient, and you're inviting God to help you with it by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what a, dis- a discipline does for you. This is spiritual worship. And of course, the result is ultimately you're going to get down the line maybe a few months, maybe a few years, and you're going to recognize, man, God has borne this thing in me where I was impatient a few months ago. Now I'm able to handle this circumstance or these people a little bit better. But here's how you really know you're doing better. You think differently. Look at verse two. Do not be uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul is saying, when you lead a life of worship, you begin to delight in God's will. You you see it as preferable. He says it like this. He says, it's good and acceptable and perfect. You see it in, in God's light, the way that he sees it. It's not a have to, it's a want to. It's not a I ought to, it's God gives you the desire to actually do the very thing that before you didn't want to do. And here's, here's how I, I see it in my life. Uh, when, I, when I know that at some point I desire to do the very thing God wants me to do, I want to do it more. And God sees that as pleasing. That's, that's living, that's a living sacrifice. That's how you know that Jesus is alive in your heart by the Holy Spirit, when you want what God wants, when your desires are his desires. And so that's the, that's, the, that's the internal work. And really, you need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. But there is an external work as well. And that really is where we're going to spend most of our time today. Uh, here's, here's a good saying. God works in me as I worship. That's the internal thing the Holy Spirit does. He works through me as I use his good gifts to serve the people of God. God works in me as I worship, he works ultimately through me as I use his good gifts to serve other people. And that's what he says in the rest of this passage. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we may have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so Paul is comparing the church to to a body, and that body has many members, head, ears, eyes, tongue, mouth, arms, legs, all those. And, and he's not even counting the internal organs that would also be members of the body. And, um, you know, he gets a little into it here in Romans, but really I want to turn to 1 Corinthians because he explicates it a little bit better in 1 Corinthians. So turn right in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look there real quick. Verse 14 through 21 It's another list of spiritual gifts. Start at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We'll start right there. Uh, Paul's saying a couple things here. He's saying a lot. We're only going to couple. Uh, we're only going to. I'm only going to focus on a couple things. Firstly, he's saying every follower of Jesus has a gift. In verse 18, he particularizes that. He says, "You don't choose your gift. The gift chooses you." Uh, honestly, the Holy Spirit chooses that gift. But he's painting this picture of a metaphor. Our body is like. Uh, we have one body, but that body has many members. And so in the church, we're one body. Each of us is a member, and there are consequently many gifts. But there's only one goal amongst all those gifts, and it should be to serve. That's his point here. Our goal should be to serve. And here's, here's really what this boils down to me. It means everybody's needed. If you are a member of the body and you have a gift, then God has intended for you to use that gift and service, not just to yourself, although sometimes we do serve ourselves with the gifts that God gives us, but he intends for you to use it to serve the church. Now, Paul is writing to, to a church, the church at Corinth, which was a church with some issues, and he's saying to this church the very same thing I'm saying to you. You're needed. If you're here with your bottom in a seat, then, then you're needed. I said, it, I said it last week like this. If you're part of the community, then in a sense, when you're not doing what God has called you to do, it's as if something is missing. We need you. You need us. And I think it, it, it corresponds to the same area of, of service. God wants to use you, but he also wants to work through you. Um, you know, we got some excuses for, for, for that. A lot of times we would say, well, I feel disqualified. I mean, I mean, I don't know enough. I haven't been a Christian long enough. I've got some sin in my life, and I don't, I mean, I don't want it to eke out and, and like taint anybody else. I'm busy. We say all those things. But here's the thing. It, it's actually not about your ability. God, God will use you regardless of how talented or how developed your gift is. Mostly it's about your availability. Will you use the very gifts that God has already put in you? That's the question for most of us. Now, this is what some of us do. We wait. We're going to wait for this feeling to hit us. We're going to wait for lights to light up in the sky and God to spell out in the stars, Jeff, you're supposed to do this, right? Don't we do that? We wait till somebody comes and walks us up and like taps us on the shoulder and it's like, you're supposed to be doing this. And then, you know, actually, sometimes that's good. We're supposed to... We're, we're supposed to be affirmed by other people, especially in regards to, to our gifts. Um, and God can do anything. God can write our name in the sky and tell us, Jeff, you're supposed to do this. But generally, that's not the way it's going to happen. What does God expect? He wants you to just jump right on in. He wants you to j- jump right in. That's what it says in verse 6. Turn back to Romans. Romans 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, 
the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with, with cheerfulness. I think what Paul is saying here is, you know, jump in. We've looked at two different lists of, of spiritual gifts this morning. There are several, okay? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. At the end of our service, we're going to look at another list, 1 Peter 4. God wasn't trying to give us a complete list. He's trying to just be, help us to be familiar with some of them as they are operating amongst the people of God and in the church. In this particular list, Paul is, is writing, he's like, when you're trying to figure out your gift, jump in. I had this conversation. I tried this scripture verse out during our family devotions this week, and I asked my kids, so how do you know if you got a gift? And, uh, you know, I, Jonathan's 18, David's 15, Zoe is, Zoe is 11. And so they had varying degrees of knowing what their particular gifts were. Jonathan spoke up first because he's the oldest, and he said, well, I, I, I know I'm gifted musically, but actually I think I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be a leader of some sort. And he had it right. How did he know that? Well, obviously, he plays a lot of musical instruments. Uh, he's learned that from us because we taught, we, you know, as a parent, we're, we're looking at our kids and we're, you know, using a little bit of discernment to see what they're inclined to, what they like. Uh, I, started, uh, I started Jonathan uh, playing the piano in, uh, when he was six. In three months, he had exhausted everything I knew to, to give him. And so and then we, uh, there's a, uh, our worship pastor lived two doors down, and his, his uh, son was 16 years old, and Jonathan started studying under him, and then he exhausted everything he knew in a year, and that, after that, it's been like professionals ever since, and, and you all just see the, the, the violin part of Jonathan, and so all his life has been, we've been stewarding this thing that we see in him in hopes that God would, you know, nurture it and, and usher him into uh, the calling of his life in that regard, so parents, that's what you're supposed to be doing. How do you know you have a gift? Um, look for it. But for those of us who are hard-headed like me, jump in. If, if you feel like you can teach, start teaching. If you feel like you're supposed to start showing mercy to people, my God, show some mercy, right? Show some mercy. As a pastor, if you're feeling generous, be generous. Be generous to your church. Be generous to the people. Be generous with your home. Be generous with your life. That's what Paul is saying. Don't wait for God to write in the sky with letters and stars that, that are telling you what to do. You know, a lot of times we, uh, um, you know, the, 20 years ago, we used to use these uh, spiritual gifts tests. And obviously those are, are, those are good surveys. Or some of you have been exposed to Myers-Briggs, that inventory that tells you about your personality. And those are very useful ways to know what you're good at or how you're inclined and the things that you're supposed to be kind of sort of doing. When Paul wrote these words a couple thousand years ago, he didn't have Myers-Briggs and he didn't have a spiritual gifts test. So what were the people of God supposed to do? They were supposed to kind of sort of, you know, well, I think I like to do this and then just start doing it. And so that would be my encouragement to you. If you haven't figured out your gift yet, jump in. If you feel like you're supposed to be doing something, start doing it. And obviously, God is going to lead you in that. You may need others to come alongside you um, to help you understand what you're good at. But the main thing uh, is, is this. I think the most important thing in serving is making the right choice with your free time. 
That's really what service is. It's making the right choice with your free time. There's a principle called the Pareto principle. This is a business, a pr business principle, but uh, it's, it's a uh, adequately and accurately applied to understand volunteer organizations. And here's what the principle, principle says. It says 80% of the work in most volunteer organizations is done by 20% of the people. That would mean that all the things that a, uh, an organization does, volunteer organization, nonprofits, uh, from the administrative work to the actual hands-on of whatever they do, 80% of what they do is done by 20% of the people. That's not a good statistic, right? All right, so that's, that's not good. But I would tell you that's, that's true. It's true of most volunteer organizations in the country. It's true of most churches in America. Here's the worst news. Is worse or a word? Is it? I don't know. All right, so here's the, here's the, it gets worse. <laughs> That's our church, right? It's our church. 80% of what we do is done by 20% of the people. That goes from everything from serve, you know, in every way we serve to, to giving. 80% of what we do is done by 20% of the work. I should, cal I should qualify that because half y'all work in the kids, I mean, half our church works in kids ministry, right? It's a huge undertaking because we have a lot of kids. There's a, there's a sociological experiment done at Princeton. This is quite interesting. So the uh, officials at Princeton, um, particularly the seminary, uh, told some seminary students to prepare a five-minute sermon, and they put them in one building. They gave them a text and told them, all right, so you're going to prepare your sermon here, just five minutes, and you're going to walk over down this alley into another building, and you're going to preach that sermon. Now, what they had done behind the scenes was they had hired a dude to play a homeless guy, and they put him in the, in the, in the walkway between these two buildings. And, I mean, he, he was dressed for the part. He smelled. He looked disheveled. Uh, he was laying on the ground, yelling and moaning out, oh, help me. All right? And so the, it was an experiment, and the experiment was to, to test the, the Good Samaritan principle, from, from Scripture to see who would respond. And so the surveyors um, exposed several things in this study. Here's the, one of the first things they exposed. There's, there's two types of seminary students. The first type are those that have actually come to seminary for themselves. They are there because they, for whatever reason, they've come particularly for themselves. They feel it's their calling. They want to be trained so they can go and do a life of ministry or whatever. But there are another another group of seminary students who came for another reason, several other reasons, but it's primarily because someone else told them to come. They, were, they weren't there for themselves. That was the first thing that came out. Um, here's, here's something else that came out. Um, the big question was, who will stop to serve the homeless guy? Now, let me ask you. All right, so you got two groups of people. You got people who are there for themselves, wanting to further their career, you got people there who are, who are there for other people. By show of hands, who do you think would stop to help the homeless guy more? Those who were there for themselves, raise your hand. Those who were there for other people. All right, so that's a trick. That's a trick. I, I, there's more information. I haven't given you all, all the information. So um, before they sent the, the seminary student from one building with his sermon to go preach to another building, they actually introduced a time variable. And, and to, to one group, they said, all right, so 
you're late. You need to get over to the building really quick and preach your sermon. All right, so they, that, that was one, one variable. Another group, they basically said, all right, so check it out. You're not late, but we want you to, to, to take your stuff, go on over and get in the queue because they're expecting you to be there shortly. All right, so here, here was the outcome. Um, the, the, un, the, the hurried group, those that they told, stop what you're doing, get over into the building and preach your sermon, guess how many of them stopped to help the homeless guy? 10%. Of the unhurried group, those that they told, all right, so you're not in a hurry, time is not pressing, but we want you to get over there anyway, 63% of those people stopped to help the homeless guy. What's the implication of that? It's, it's your emotional margin. It's not the conviction of your heart. It's, it's not the content of what you're thinking that actually helps you make ethical decisions. Here's the Cliff's Notes version of that. A person in a hurry is less likely to serve. A person in a hurry is less likely to serve. I mean, that's an interesting result of this, of this survey, but it's absolutely true. Let me boil this down for you. Uh, here's what I mean by emotional margin. Uh, my wife actually bought me a book two or three years ago. Uh, I got it on Kindle. Excellent book. I've never read the book. The book's called Margins by a guy named Richard Swenson. Uh, the, the premise of the book is that most people don't have enough margin in their lives. And he talks about finances. He talks about time. He talks about emotional uh, emotional energy, this idea of emotional margin. And I've never read the book. That's why. Because I don't have enough margin in my life. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And so he, he looks at, particularly at the area of finances, and it's like you spend all your cash or you, you exceed your credit limit and you have no room left for emergencies. Or, for example, with our time, we, our lives are so full, there's no margin to do anything else. And I think it's the same thing with serving. And so emotional margin gets, gets at the frantic nature of, of our lives and of our hearts. And so what this survey brought out is if you're hurried, you're not going to have the margin to do what you know is the right thing to do. Some of these seminary students, they literally stepped over the homeless guy uh, on their way to the building to preach. Guess what they were told their text was? The Good Samaritan. You can look this up. Just Google it. Princeton Good Samaritan Survey. They were going to preach about, you know, stopping if they help a guy on the street that's like helpless. And they stepped over the homeless guy to get to their task of preaching a sermon on the very same text. But here's the thing. We do this all the time. We, per we perhaps don't do it in this area of, of, of helping a homeless person, but we'll do it in all kinds of other areas of our life. But what I'm trying to get you to do is to see that when you slow down, you're able to pay attention. You perhaps might care, care more, but more importantly, in, in our case, as a church, as a community of faith, you might even serve more. So a young pastor was having lunch with a mentor, and he asked for advice on the most important things to do as he was beginning his ministry. And here's what the mentor said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. 80% of y'all aren't trying to be a pastor, probably even more. But this, this, this same principle is applicable to all of us. I think we need to consider eliminating hurry from our lives. Why? 
because if you're always hurried, you don't see the things around you that you perhaps would see that actually really align with your values. You can't even do the ethical thing because you're in a hurry and you can't, I mean, you're not even taking the time to, to see the things around you. And so Transit Church, we're, going, we're talking about service today. I know, I know I've gone around the world with that. Um, I'm not asking you to serve your church. I'm, I really am not. Am I going to talk about service in a minute? Yes, I am. Am I going to give you an opportunity to serve? Absolutely. I'm not talking about service, though. What I'm talking about is you being a, a disciple. I want you to be a disciple. Because, why? Because disciples serve. And it, it's, it's ridiculous. You are the church. I don't need you to serve the church. You are the church. We're asking you to slow down and pay attention because when you do that, you'll see opportunities to serve that exist around you. And I'm going to spend my sermon, the rest of my sermon, like five minutes more, talking about some of these. All right, so one of the ways I want you to serve your church is by being a disciple. So when you came to church this morning, perhaps you came on Old Telegraph Road, and you noticed that there were some signs leading you here, signs, right, real estate signs. It said, Transit Church, we meet at Hayfield, entrance 9, 10 o'clock. You come in, you got two banners, you got a wind, uh, a wind invitation right there that says, welcome. I pray that someone, somebody opened the door for you this morning, that they at least had some teeth showing, smiling at you, even if they were faking it. You come in, you come to a foyer that's a little bit organized. You got a lot of activity. You got free coffee. You got tea. I mean, who? I mean, free tea. That's not my idea, right? Um, hopefully, you have some good fellowship going on. If you have kids, you're pointing to the kids' ministry and our resource table. And hopefully, and when you're checking your kids in, if we don't know you, we've you know provided a, a good atmosphere for you to, to get to know us and know that your kids are going to be treated in a, a nice, safe environment. And then we come in here and, and we worship. And I mean, all, you know, all the things that happen with, with worship, people leading and serving and talking and all that stuff. As we speak right now, there are nine to ten um, non-paid staff members of our church who are back discipling, you know, coming alongside you to disciple your kids. And we're using a great curriculum, trying to introduce Jesus to them and, you know, give them a good footing on what the gospel is. Fifteen minutes from now, as we close, there's going to be another group of people that will, that will undo this room. Everything in this room, except for the chairs and the tables behind the curtains, we brought it. We put it in a trailer. And so we're going to pack all this stuff up we're going to put it in the trailer. And oh, by the way, someone is going to get into a truck, the truck the church owns, drive it back two miles down the road and park it at our office. And we're going to do the same thing next week. And I tell you all that, not because it's hard. It's not hard stuff to do. I mean, all that's easy. But guess what? It takes time. And some of you would say, you know, Jeff, I don't have time. Some of you would say, you know what? Well, I don't know how to do that. Obviously, we can teach you how to do it. Some of you would say, well, I don't want to do that. I mean, who wants to like, come to church and serve? <laughs> but I think you're called to it because you're a Christian. More than that, you're, you're a disciple. Some of you would say, you know what? I, I just want to come and listen and, and just you know, get fed and, and then go. I'm uncomfortable doing the other things. But I, I'll tell you a little secret. I am paid to make you feel uncomfortable. Did you ever notice that? The pastor comes up and he, any church, hopefully every church is doing this, I come up and I talk about the things that make us uncomfortable. Not just you, me too. Because we're reading from the, from the Bible. And when the Bible 
um, articulate something that we're not doing, then what should happen in a gospel-centric way is our, our, our sin awareness goes up and we have an opportunity to confess our sin to God and repent and, and realign ourselves with the Bible. That's what happens in church every week. And so uh, I want to, I mean, I want to do my job. I'm not here asking for money. I'm actually not even asking for your time. I'm asking for your life. I want you to, to do the hokey pokey. I want, to, I want you to put your whole self in. I want you to be a living sacrifice, being all used up for Jesus. Why? Because he's, he's worthy of it. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm actually saying, come join the family. Don't, don't pretend like you're, I don't want you to feel like you're serving or, or doing us a, a favor by helping out a little bit. I just want you to, to be a part of the family. Let's do this together. Obviously, there's an opportunity for you to join the team next Sunday at 9 o'clock. And the, and the main issue is you making time. Here's another opportunity for you to serve. We want you to be on mission. We're trying to be more missional and intentional as a church, and we've got, begun a, uh, a group called our, our Missions and Outreach Team. That, that, that title is not, not necessarily good yet, but the intention behind it is really good. We're trying to be more intentional about looking at the community that's right here around all of us and, and jumping in and doing something for the good of the gospel that's going to eventually lead to not just relationship, but people who don't know Jesus coming to know him. And so Alicia and Peter are heading this up. This group is about 10 people big so far, and they're already starting to do some, some neat things. Um, that we're talking about, we're, we're a, a church of military people. And so we're talking about potentially going to uh, a veteran's home and just loving on uh, some veterans who are elderly and who could use uh, some friends and some, you know, some people to care and, and love them. Uh, uh, there's a ministry going, going on in Fairfax County called Young Life uh, that actually meets at this school as well that a couple of our students have already started to avail themselves to. Actually, the leader of it goes to our church, Mark, stand up, Mark Cruz right here. And guess what they do? They don't find Christian young, young men and women. They find, Christ, they find young women, young women, women who are far away from God. And they try to, through, um, through friendship, uh, make the gospel appealing. And they, they, they try to um, um, prepare young kids who do know Jesus to go into these environments of the school and, and be missionaries where they are. And so we've begun a, a partnership with them, um, and you're going to hear more about it. We're looking at uh, schools in our area and asking how could we come alongside schools and, and be tutors or, you know, not just, hand, I don't, I don't want to be a church that hands stuff out to, to, to people who need stuff, not that we can't do that, but how can we be impactful from a, from a perspective of um, changing hearts, changing lives? Those are the kind of things that we want to do. And so this group is a group that's looking at any and everything. If you've got good ideas, there's a sign up out in the foyer. Contact Alicia. Um, avail yourself to this group. Um, and, and let's be missional. Let's do those kinds of things that are going to impact, um, impact our community and ultimately impact the world around us. Ultimately, when we, when we, when we serve, um, it's not about serving. It's about, it's about family. I want you to see it about that. I, I learned uh, I grew up in a, de- uh, I mean, I, I grew up in a, a good family. My, my, my parents were caring. I didn't feel that I lacked anything, even though we were a middle, uh, a lower middle class family. But the neat thing about, uh, 
about true families I learned after becoming a Christian. And I learned just from the church family. I learned from my wife's family. Her father was a pastor. And, and it looked like this. Healthy families, uh, I mean, they've got initiative. They've got goals. They laugh and play together. And when there's work to be done, it, it's not individuals doing it all by themselves. They come together and they do it together. There's a person in need. We all help. That's community. If there's some, some work to be done, Everybody pitches in. That's service. And what I'm asking you to do is join the team. Be a part of the family. If you've been coming to Transit for a little bit, hey, we already can see you're a part of the family. What can you lend as, as a gift to do that? Service is an expectation of disciples. So let's be disciples. Let's join the team. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to... Uh, to be a part of your mission on the earth, both your mission in the church where we are the family of God and we can serve the practical needs of the church, but more than that, uh, serving outside those needs of the community around us that we might just rub elbows with people who really need to know Jesus, the Jesus who we know, uh, that we would invite them into our lives and that having done so, um, they would come to know him by the by the, you know, by the work of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives and theirs. So we pray that would happen in our midst. God, make us not just disciples, but, but people who are our family, working and serving together for the betterment of the gospel and the good of the church. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.